Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we are going to be coming back to this big question about European sovereignties, the sixth episode in this special series and is one which is very much inspired by events taking place at the United Nations this week, where Donald Trump has been chairing the United Nations Security Council and has been urging other members of the UN Security Council to work with America to ensure that Iran never acquires a nuclear bomb. But rather than supporting the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, he uh, is doubling down on his decision to withdraw from it and threatening not just sanctions on Iran itself, but on any other countries, companies or individuals that have anything economically to do with Iran. To help us make sense of this topic of secondary sanctions, to look at what's going on this week, but also the bigger question about Europe and sanctions policy, I have an all-star cast. First up, uh, is uh, Manuel Lafont-Hapnoui, who is the head of ECFR's Paris office, a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and well known to listeners to this podcast. And also joining us is uh, Erika Moret from the Graduate Institute in Geneva, who has uh, made a career out of uh, writing some of the, the most insightful and interesting things on, on EU sanctions policy over a number of years. So, Manuel, why don't you tell us what's going on in New York this week and how it affects the Europeans? What is going on in New York is basically uh, the follow-up on the, on the bilateral divergence between Europe and US on what to do with the uh, Iran sanction. Because the thing is, uh, Trump did not only decide to withdraw from the Iran deal, but he decided to uh, threaten all those who would continue to work with Iran, trade or investment, with uh, so-called secondary sanctions. Uh, the, the US sanctions would not only target uh, Iranian, but also those who work with uh, Iran. Uh, and therefore, uh, Europeans have been looking since this uh, announcement for ways to turn around and circumvent those secondary sanctions. And uh, Mogherini has announced uh, with uh, actually China and Russia and Iran that the idea was to set up a special purpose vehicle that would allow to have those kind of economic and financial exchanges with the US uh, in a way that is insulated from the US and therefore the US uh, cannot have legal jurisdiction and therefore cannot impose sanctions on those, uh, uh, on those um, exchanges. This is mostly aimed at facilitating uh, oil trade with Iran. It certainly cannot be a full uh, and encompassing answer to the threat of, uh, of secondary sanctions. But the US still have reacted very adamantly that uh, they saw that as an act of defiance. And the fact is, they're right. It is an act of defiance. It is an act of trying to find a way not to align on the US policy and what the US is looking for is exactly through sanctions to align Europeans on their own policy. So um, can the two of you maybe explain a bit more how this would work in practice, this special purpose vehicle? Um, we kind of heard uh, a lot of uh, Sturm und Drang about its existence, but it's uh, it's not entirely clear to, to, I mean, for non-experts, can you sort of explain how it would work um, and 
what it actually uh, would allow, which has traditionally been impossible without the SPV, as it's called. So, one of the way the US imposes sanctions on non-US actors is that it finds a way to say it has jurisdiction on what these non-US actors is doing. And one of the way that the US says it has jurisdiction is through its currency, the dollar, because the dollar is such a central currency in any uh, economic or financial exchange in the world. They are able to get after uh, non-US actors and impose sanctions or impose fines. And, that, and they have done that in the past quite uh, aggressively. So the whole idea of the special um, purpose vehicle is to facilitate payments uh, related to Iran's exports, uh, most importantly oil, uh, so that you are out of this, um, of this situation where you have to use the dollar uh, to, um, to avoid US jurisdiction and therefore US uh, sanctions. It's, it's basically a sophisticated barter system. But how does that work? Because presumably you have to have some kind of link between the SPV and um, uh, the dollar system at some point. So if you're Total, for example, um, and you s sell stuff to the SPV and then the SPV um, passes it on to the Iranians, could you not still be targeted by the, by the US um, government? Well, the U.S. is going to try to go that route, but that's the whole question about it. And, and I'm, I'm not sure we know yet uh, how uh, that can work, and I'm not sure that we know yet how the U.S. would try to respond to the idea. But precisely, a lot of the idea of the European reactions to the threat of U.S. secondary section, sanctions is to try to find mechanisms, uh, financial channels that are insulated as far as it is possible. And, and part of the difficulty that the Europeans I've met with is that precisely insulating those channels is not that easy in the kind of, of globalized uh, economy that we live with. That's uh, more to do with oil sales. Um, there's another kind of big uh, looming dispute as the, the next round of US sanctions comes into place in early November, and that's around the whole idea of, uh, of payment systems, but and more importantly, the messaging behind payment systems. Um, there's lots of discussion about um, uh, SWIFT, which is a, a Belgian-based financial messaging system that allows banks around the world to send money um, uh, to each other. And um, a lot of people are asking whether SWIFT is going to give in to, to US sanctions and cut off Iranian banks from its systems, or whether they will um, be able to stand up to them and follow the, the policies of the, the country and the continent that SWIFT is based in, in other words, Belgium and Europe, who are opposed to, to destroying the, the, the Iran deal. Um, there's speculation uh, that uh, the US government isn't just threatening the, the company, but some of the directors behind it. Um, I don't know if Erica or Manuel, you want to talk a bit more about that because that seems to be uh, perhaps an even bigger deal um, in terms of uh, Iran's ability to be part of the global economy. On, in the case of SWIFT, um, listeners will no doubt remember that uh, this has been an issue both for countries and regional groupings imposing sanctions but also those who are being sanctioned. So 
Um, we've heard a lot about um, the use of SWIFT in sanctions against Iran in the past, but with the case of Russia, what, what you might remember is that um, sanctions were threatened in relation to SWIFT, but it never materialised, and that was, of course, because of the far greater economic and commercial ties between the EU and the West in general and Russia as compared to Iran. Um, what we saw in the case of Russia is that there have been developments of uh, an alternative um, payment system with a number of other emerging powers around the world as a preemptive attempt to avoid any future problems on that on that front, um, arguably, what some have termed as the securitization of the Russian economy in response to sanctions imposed on it. But with the case of Iran, it, the, the big question, I think, and um, we need to look back at the, the speech of Emmanuel Macron, French president, in May 2018, that he said that the US's secondary sanctions against Europe, Europe, along with the tariffs that have been imposed on the aluminum and steel sectors, are one of the greatest tests of European sovereignty. And I think the focus is being very much placed upon how we could um, move away from the usual US channels that are involved in um, payment systems. One point I'll make on that, though, is that um, there's, a, there's a very strong risk that the US will still um, attempt to impose sanctions on this new payment channel, of course. So it's a bit of a catch-22. And European companies and banks are very likely to continue to be nervous about um, employing this kind of channel in the future, is my prediction. And to add up to, add up to what Erika just said, first, um, indeed, there are a few doubts about whether SWIFT, the, although it's Brussels-based, uh, will uh, not bow to US pressure. And during the summer, uh, last August, uh, Heiko Maas, the German uh, foreign minister, had an op-ed uh, in, in the Handelsblatt uh, calling for the establishment of an independent SWIFT uh, payment system, which means that the, the, the expectation is that the current uh, SWIFT system, although Brussels-based, has uh, strong and, and close enough links to the US, including through some of its, uh, of its uh, uh, um, senior management staff, uh, that this independence is not so, so clear. And second, I want to reinforce what Erika just said. European authorities have been trying to establish those uh, channels and mechanisms and provisions that would help European companies to, if they wanted to, if they wanted to uh, um, resist uh, uh, or, or escape uh, US uh, secondary sanctions or the threat of it. But the fact is, at the end of the day, it's for the companies to decide whether they're going to trade with Iran or to invest in Iran. And most of them are not secure enough, uh, given the level of uncertainty and lack of clarity and the novelty of all those channels and mechanisms and provisions, and therefore eventually decide to rather uh, uh, not take the risk. And that is exactly what we are seeing in the case of Iran. In spite of the European efforts to try to find solutions, you have a lot of big companies who have huge uh, interest with the US or just who are making business through the dollar in many occasions who say this is too much of a risk, uh, uh, it's not worth it. In that context, um, maybe it's worth also for people who haven't followed sanctions as closely as the two of you to, to explain a bit more how these sort of um, systems work because one of the interesting things things from my perspective I think is is to see how 
these this tool has developed over the last 15 years or so i mean these smart sanctions and the weaponization of the financial services industry um i think started after september the 11th when clever people in the u.s treasury were looking at ways to stop future attacks such as that which was launched on the world trade center and um you know there's a very um uh, um clever um former treasury official called Stuart levy who i think was the uh, originator of of um the financial sanctions against iran um, when he was working in the treasury as a as an official um, and since then there's been a kind of explosion of of um of the sanctions tool it became the the kind of tool of first resort for the obama administration but the idea behind that was rather than going for the sort of blunt sanctions against entire countries that what you would do is identify particular individuals and then find ways of <clears throat> um uh, of, of um of, of shutting them out of the uh, of the system and particularly make the f- private sector and, and the banks um, uh, do the work for you and turn them into a into a kind of extension of uh, of American foreign policy. Um, but what's weird about this latest sort of set of of, um, of sanctions is that we're hearing rumours, at least, of uh, um, of even. Um, you know, European government officials, um, such as, you know, heads of European central banks or directors of the European Investment Bank being targeted um, because... Uh, being threatened to be targeted. But sorry, do you, do you, why don't you explain more then, Manuel, seeing as you're uh, not only being more precise in your, in your use of language, but you've been following it very closely. So, yes, there's been a rise of uh, the resort to sanctions. Actually, it started even before uh, September 11. It started in the 90s. Uh, the financial sections beat clearly has developed after September 11, although financial sections uh, against terrorism are still discussed on whether they're effective or not. But in a number of other situations, including Iran, clearly financial sections have played a, a key role in uh, hitting the uh, Iranian economy quite hard. Um, the, the, in fact, uh, these uh, financial section, sanctions do have a deterrent uh, effect and not just an impact as such on, on deterring anyone to even run the risk uh, of, of going there. There's a lot of, uh, as they say, um, uh, I'm missing the word, uh, when you over compliance. I take, I take it again. Um, so there's a lot of uh, companies who decide to over comply with the requirements to make sure that they won't run the risk of being uh, hit by sanctions. And over complying basically often means not doing business at all when there's a risk of uh, being in a case where you can be hit by sanctions. And so those financial sanctions are very strong. Um, now you have this situation where precisely... Uh, <laughs> There's less consensus than there was uh, on financial sanctions against Iran. Uh, Not only the Europeans, but also China and Russia, of course, uh, are disagreeing with the US. Actually, the US is uh, almost the only one following this uh, policy of trying to uh, uh, get back to sanctioning Iran. And therefore, um, the the goal of the US uh, administration is to, as I said earlier, force uh, its partner into alignment 
into uh, uh, abiding by the, the provisions and the sanctions that the US uh, has decided. And one way to do that, indeed, is to try to deter uh, Europeans to uh, continue working uh, their ways and their channels uh, to continue to have their autonomous policies. And indeed, you have heard, uh, you have seen in some media reports ideas that some European officials could be threatened. I think it's more by uh, people who have a, um, uh, a more distant uh, relation to the actual policy than the people who are in charge, because those kind of sanctioning, uh, for instance, an official from a, a European Central Bank uh, would be quite uh, something. Um, but there is indeed uh, this idea uh, floating around that uh, the US could be targeting individual uh, uh, officials in their official capacity um, to force its way through imposing its own sanctioned policy on Iran to its European allies. So, Erica, what do you think Europe can do about this? I mean, uh, could, can it take countermeasures against these American sanctions or is the hegemony of the dollar so strong that we just have to suck it up and see? Well, a first, a first thing that the, the, the EU is already doing is a blocking statute that has um, been renewed in uh, earlier in October, so, sorry, um, in August 2018. Um, a blocking statute allows EU um, actors to recover damages arising from US secondary sanctions and also nullifies the effect in the EU of any foreign court rulings based on these secondary sanctions. Um, so this is one thing that's happening. And interestingly, if we look back to um, the US's use of secondary sanctions in the past, we see that it's been going on for actually quite a long time. In the case of Cuba, um, the US imposed secondary sanctions uh, aggressively against um, uh, uh, international entities since the 1990s. Um, so that provides some precedence. And the EU w um, proved a very robust uh, counter counter um, opponent, you know, um, counter um, balance to the US measures at, in that particular case. And I think what we'll see with Iran is something um, rather similar in, in certain ways. Just going back to your point about the targeted measures um, proliferating since uh, the last um, 10, 20, 30 years, I think that's very much the case. And the use of targeted measures um, uh, came about, of course, in, in great part in reaction to the UN sanctions against Iraq and the associated potential humanitarian implications that came out of that, but also UN measures against Haiti, former um, Republic of Yugoslavia, and also um, US measures on Cuba, as I mentioned already. Um, but what we're seeing with the case of Iran, which I think is, is worth keeping in mind, is that they the measures when taken in unison between the US, the EU and other actors, other international powers, um, has increasingly started to resemble comprehensive measures, again, like we saw in the cases of embargoes in the past, when sanctions are applied against uh, a country's central bank, against uh, a large part of its energy sector, we start to see some of the broad-based impacts that we saw in the past. So that's, I think, something worth keeping in mind as well, that really, they, while in paper they remain targeted, they have become um, increasingly uh, broad and comprehensive over time. And um, just another a quick point on, on Manuel's um, 
suggestion about overcompliance. I think this is this is really important to keep in mind because whatever the EU does, I think it, on a political level it will be extremely important to show um, continued dedication to the JCPOA. But what we have to remember is that international companies will always tend to comply with the strictest set of sanctions that are in place for fear of um, the enormous fines that can be levied against them. We have to look no further than many of the European banks that have been sanctioned, um, that have been um, fined by the US in recent years. Um, and also the, the, the threat of retrospective action as well, it would be very much on the minds of the private sector. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the big worries that, about the blocking statute, that it kind of works in principle, but in practice, the deterrent effect is so strong that unless you're a tiny company that um, doesn't ever want to have anything to do with the US system, the, the risks are, are too great. One of the things that you hear these days is that it, it may no, not work immediately uh, and that's a shame because uh, we have an immediate case uh, with the Iranian uh, uh, situation. But it's important, as uh, Rika said, to show dedication and continuity so that at least you are able to uh, give credibility to these for a next occasion, a next situation. And you don't build a situation where because you're resignated for that particular case, actually you make yourself vulnerable for other situations where secondary sanctions would target European. And so there's a sense that there will be a learning curve, there will be uh, 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 short-term limitations, but the idea is to try to build something that is credible, at least in the medium term. And, and that's what some European leaders uh, seem to be trying to do. What about this idea about, of Europeans taking countermeasures against American sanctions? That's something we discussed in earlier podcasts. It's something which all the economists and sanctions experts that I speak to seem to think is a, is a good idea, but it's also quite a long way from where policy is at the moment and um, would be a, a kind of big step uh, away from the, the uh, traditional slightly subservient way that the US uh, extraterritoriality has been treated by, by European governments? I, I would say that, um, as you say, um, the, the, this is really uh, extraterritoriality in, its, in, its very, in a very pure form. And it's, of course, very much resented by the EU and European leaders. And, um, I, but the idea that, uh, as you, the suggestion that you raised that the, um, the EU may go about retaliating, I personally think that's very unlikely. Uh, we need to keep in mind that, as you say, the, the US is very much the world leader on autonomous sanctions. That's to say sanctions that are imposed outside of the UN, um, UN framework. And the EU tends to very closely mirror them, not, not identically, of course, but... Uh, we, we typically see a sequence whereby the US imposes measures and that is very closely followed by similar measures by the EU and in turn other international allies, Japan, Australia, Canada, uh, South Korea and others, as well as uh, EU neighbouring countries, uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Switzerland, Norway, etc. So um, I think it would be extremely disruptive to start um, counter countermeasures in return but I, I, I know it's being discussed and I, I have seen that it's, um, 
receiving some attention. And you're a, a former, probably future diplomat. Do you think there's any chance that um, uh, that Europeans take advantage of the fact that I'm currently not a diplomat and so I can speak? Uh, I agree with Eka on the on the the fact that it would be a, a huge shift for Europeans on extraterritoriality that it would have a lot of disruptive effect. More globally, uh, just to make clear, the idea is not to sanction the US, but to try to target uh, uh, Trump, uh, Trump or Trump families or Trump's uh, corporations' interests, especially their assets in Europe, uh, which would be there. But even that would be engaging in a sanctions war with the US, which first, I'm not sure that politically uh, European leaders are there. Uh, I see, on the contrary, a lot of efforts of most, if not all, European leaders to try to uh, stop, do everything short of being the one responsible for opening a confrontation uh, with the US. The problem is the US is opening a confrontation with Europeans, but European leaders are trying not to give in that game. And second, uh, sanctions war in itself would be highly disruptive on a number of, uh, of issues with significant economic and financial consequences. So I'm not sure that's the most uh, likely uh, uh, scenario, I must say. And another point to keep in mind is the legal side of, of the House. Um, of course, there's no consensus in the international community about the legality of unilateral or autonomous sanctions. Um, those working in the field of foreign policy tend to see it as a tool of foreign and, and security policy. Uh, not counter to international law, but then there are there is there does exist a school of international lawyers that question whether unilateral sanctions are actually legal per se, and and therefore argue that um, an international legal justification is needed for their use. So I think there will be um, considerations about um, cases being brought to the European Court of Justice and to uh, to other courts um, around the world, and I think that will be in the forefront of um, European foreign. Um, foreign policy makers. One other idea which is sort of floating out there which would be good to get your take on which is the idea of setting up uh, a European OFAC which is an idea floated by the French economy minister Bruno Le Maire. OFAC for those who are not sanctions nerds is the Office of Foreign Assets Control which is an agency of the US Treasury that brings together financial intelligence and enforcement um, and is one of the, the kind of most effective um, uh, agencies uh, in the world for uh, moving f for both um, uh, implementing um, uh, targeted sanctions against different countries, regimes, terrorists, narcotics traffickers and others in, in different places, but also uh, working uh, to scare the hell out of companies and um, uh, uh, and other agents around the world by talking about smart compliance with them and send, sending agents around on, on roadshows in different places. Why does uh, Europe need a, an OFAC and would that help to, to restore a more um, uh, balanced regime? Maybe, uh, so the, the first thing is, if you think of an OFAC in that context, uh, where basically it would allow Europeans to reciprocate on uh, on US uh, policy and and respond to it, then you're back to the the shift towards extraterritoriality that we mentioned. Second, OFAC is a very particular uh, uh, tool. Um, it's it's basically a very uh, 
political tool. It does design, it does policy, it does not follow just implementation. I would argue that Europeans probably uh, need some kind of a similar body, but for the implementation parts of its sanction policy. The, the, the one thing that is really strange uh, in the way Europeans do sanctions is that they've invested so much into it, they have so many sanctions regime, it's been kind of a a tool of choice uh, in most cases and in most crises for Europeans. And yet there is very little in terms of either national or EU level architecture focusing on things like implementation, enforcement, intelligence, etc. And that is where OFAC could be some, somewhat inspiring. But as a model as such, uh, I, like, I like to quote what uh, Harold Coe, who uh, is a, a, a U.S. Uh, lawyer who works as a, a legal counsel in the Obama administration says about sanctions. He said they are like football. When European talks about football, they think team coordination and technical finesse. And when Americans talk about football, they think of crushing their opponent. And OFAC, the way the U.S. has set up the OFAC is precisely for crushing the opponent. I don't think this is the way Europeans uh, should uh, uh, shape their sanctions policy. But certainly you need to do more on implementation, on enforcement, on intelligence and all the like uh, that goes that comes after that we have agreed on a set of, of sanctions provisions. That, if I may as well, that um, if we look at OFAC, um, what is really striking is the enormous amount of resourcing and staffing that is put into it. And if you if you can compare it to the amount of um, people and and money that's put into working on sanctions in the European sphere, it's really quite astounding, the difference. And as Manuel said, it's absolutely true that the different EU member states have very varying uh, degrees of sanctions expertise, ability to monitor compliance and enforcement. And um, the UK, for example, is, is bolstering and has bolstered um, their capacities in these areas in, in recent months and years, and in part in response to Brexit. But what we see is uh, other countries which have very small um, sanctions units in their governments and others that are developing, but really nothing on along the lines of OFAC yet. Uh, another quick point is that um, what we see in sanctions policy more widely when you look at how the US and EU autonomous sanctions are coordinated is we typically see the US playing a kind of bad cop role and the EU playing more of a good cop role. And that's very much what we saw in the Iran negotiations in the early days, at least. And um, it's something that I think the two the two powers working together in the realm of sanctions has found quite useful in the past. So I think um, uh, Manuel's point on OFAC um, crushing its opponents is a, is a really interesting one on that level. Just one last question before we uh, round up. You mentioned all the different member states that have taken part in this and singled out the UK for the role that it's played. Um, UK officials like to claim that I think 80% of the names on, on sanctions list apparently come back to the, to the UK. What happens with Brexit? both for the rest of the year if they lose the UK, but also for, uh, for the UK? Will it find itself trapped between uh, EU and US extraterritoriality? Well, I think this is a very big question that's on the minds of both UK and EU policymakers. I understand that uh, for the EU, um, losing the UK's sanctions capabilities is one of the biggest concerns in the area of um, collaborate, future collaboration on security policy post-Brexit. 
Um, the UK, of course, will uh, need to introduce a new, um, an entirely new legislation to deal with sanctions because it currently imposes them through um, EU legislation. And this is going to be in the form of um, uh, the sanctions and anti-money laundering bill, which is um, doing the rounds of the of um, House of Lords and House of Commons. Um, I think that both sides will be losers in, in short. Um, the UK is going to lose its ability to um, have a say at the negotiating table at the European Council. What we have to remember is when EU sanctions are um, formulated and decided upon, it's not typically done at the, the, the senior levels. It's a very complex mechanism that passes through various working groups at more junior le levels and can often happen increasingly in, in very quick time. So the UK will find itself outside of that process now. And really, ha having been able to work with the, the largest um, trading bloc in the world and um, a very strong soft power actor um, shouldn't be underestimated for the UK. For the EU, um, on the other side of the coin, I think the loss of um, the, U the city of London will be uh, a very um, a negative in terms of future sanctioning power, um, particularly because of the role that the UK has played in developing and um, implementing uh, financial sanctions. Um, also, um, the um, the expertise that, as I mentioned before, that's been developed in the UK will be a loss to the EU, given that um, a large number of the seconded national experts to the EU come from the UK at the moment. I think uh, France will very much be filling this role and some other countries, Netherlands and a few others, also have very strong um, sanctions um, expertise. But um, I think if it, the, the priority should be to work together extremely closely and where the, the UK will sit in the future is up for question, but I think the most likely or probably most appealing position will be somewhere between the US as a leader and others such as Switzerland and Norway, which very much follow EU sanctions and don't have any say in, in the, 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 their formulation or decision-making. Okay, I'm sure we'll come back to that again, but we're out of time for this particular podcast. We have one thing left to do, which is our bookshelf segment. Manuel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, on that particular topic, uh, Erika has written uh, at least one article uh, which uh, really deserves a read if people want it. We've also addressed that in our uh, Keep Europe Safe After Brexit paper. But what I'm reading right now is a book. For once, I'm reading fiction, fiction and not, not fiction. It's Cassandra. It's a book by um, German writer Christa Wolf. Uh, it was written in a very different moment when uh, Germany was still divided. And yet I'm amazed uh, it's about Cassandra, the uh, Trojan uh, uh, figure, uh, and what happens to her after the war uh, against the Greeks is lost. And I'm amazed uh, by how that resonates with a lot of what is happening today from fake news and information manipulation to war to uh, uh, bubbles of beliefs. Uh, it's, it's really a very good book, I must say. That's fantastic. What about you, Erica? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I'm also, like Manuel, going to go for a fiction choice. Um, it is, and it's also a shameless uh, plug for a family member. This is my first cousin, Natalia Moret. She's in Argentina, and she recently won an award as um, one of Argentina's most promising novelists, and her book is called Un Publicista en Apuros, 
and um, it's not for the faint-hearted. It has very strong language, so it comes with a bit of a, a warning. But um, it's being currently made into a feature film, and um, it's an extremely good read. I can recommend it, and it's also been written and uh, translated into French. Good, and I'm not going to recommend um, a book this week, but uh, an article which does mention a book. Um, but I found it really intriguing. Um, it's from The Economist, um, and it's called Why Europe Should Focus on Its Growing Interdependence with Africa, um, written by Jeremy Cliff, who's recently relocated to uh, Brussels from Berlin and is now writing the, the Shallow Men column. Um, and this article uh, about Eurafrica um, is both very, very thought-provoking, but it also draws on a uh, book which was recommended recently by Emmanuel, none other than Emmanuel Macron, called the, the Rush to Europe by Stephen Smith of Duke University, which looks at uh, past migrations um, like that of, of Mexicans into America and uses those different kind of um, uh, channels to, to talk about um, uh, Europe's relationship with Africa. Um, and it sounds very, very interesting indeed. And it's highly disputed here. There's a lot of debate on that particular book in France. And I'm sure, so Manuel might even uh, write about it as well. So, uh, corrective to the Cliff article in the future. So check out our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts for links, all of those things, and maybe even a piece by Manuel at some point. And um, also uh, want to tell you that if you've enjoyed this podcast, be wonderful if you could give us a rating or review. Um, we're still also very much open to uh, suggestions for the bookshelf segment. Um, you can write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you have any. But for now, from Erica Moray, Manuel Lafont-Rabnoui and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of goodbye. ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Katharina Botel-Atinaro. <laughs>